Hey everyone, thanks for exploring the biblical epic with us over here on Bible Unbound. You know, as I've kind of moved into more leadership roles in my life, I have learned one very important lesson that has shaped almost every interaction I've had since realizing this. That realization is one that is so simple, so intuitive, that I've found that lots of people sometimes never come to this realization. So let me share it with you today. People who don't want to change, don't want to change. <laughs> People who don't want to change, don't want to change. And this is profound because in lots of places and spaces throughout our lives, we're always volleying for control. Everyone everywhere is trying to have as much control over their space as they can. But then, when we are confronted with people who push back against that control, we can tend to fall apart. <laughs> no personal experience here. For example, I've asked lots of people for advice over the years, and the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten were when I wanted someone to give me the advice. Imagine that. I was in a place where I wanted to change, and I did. But on the contrary, the worst pieces of advice I've ever gotten were when I wanted to hold on to my insecurities, when I, when I wanted to hold on to my anxieties and my frustrations. Because in a, in a sick and a sinful way, our anxieties, our frustrations, our sin is comforting to us. I didn't want to change, and so I didn't. You know, I think that the prophet Zechariah is tuning into this very reality, but but on a on a much bigger scale, like like a, like a cosmically bigger scale than what I'm talking about. You know, Zechariah comes onto the scene at around the same time as Haggai. So, so I'm I'm going to quick recap Haggai. The people they're they're rebuilding the temple, but they're encountering a lot of opposition. You know, they're running out of money, they're running out of patience, and and so they're considering stopping the building process altogether. And Haggai spends lots of his time trying to encourage and, and exhort the people of God to continue building the temple. Zechariah enters into this same exact space of exhortation. He's trying to spur the people on to see the, the greater vision of God's redemptive story so that they would be encouraged to finish the building process. Zechariah has eight prophetic dreams, all of which are pretty weird. I mean, your dreams are weird, my dreams are weird, and, and, and when they're imbued with divine providence, I'd imagine they can get wonkier than when you eat cheese before bed. So, all eight visions are trying to communicate that God will one day restore Israel back to its glory, despite her rebellion, and in so doing, God will purify the land of its sin. Now, let's just stop right here, because last week we had a very similar theme going on throughout the books of Habakkuk and Zephaniah, that God was going to restore the glory of Israel and purify the land of injustice and sin. But here's the thing. Zechariah is writing almost 150 years later, which is hugely problematic for all of the people who thought that the Babylonian captivity was the purifying of the land. When the people returned from their exile, that cannot be the restoration of Israel like we previously thought it was going to be because here Zechariah is. 
there is something else going on. Something greater is coming. And so it makes sense that the central vision of Zechariah is the answer to the greater coming. The central vision concludes with the God of Israel blessing the high priest of Jerusalem, Joshua, a name which, if you remember, means Yahweh is my salvation. To understand the significance of this event, let's recap some things that we've talked about. When God blesses you, that's a big deal. It's very closely related to the idea of being anointed. Throughout the Bible, priests are anointed, kings are anointed, and this anointing not only symbolizes the close relationship that you have with God, but it also symbolizes the close relationship that God has with you. That the reality is that God is with this person. So a few weeks ago, we mentioned how Zerubbabel was anointed king. And while at the same time, Zechariah mentions how Joshua is anointed as high priest. In these two characters, Zerubbabel and Joshua, anointed together and oftentimes within the biblical narrative at this point, they come up a lot together. In other words, Joshua, much like Zerubbabel, is this other priestly king crowned by the prophets, foreshadowing and reminding the people of the coming messianic priestly king. And that's the image that Zechariah places right in the middle of his prophetic dreams. So while the restoration of Israel might not have been contingent on their return from Babylon, it would seem that when all the chips are down, that the restoration of the nation has something to do with this long-awaited Messiah guy. So it makes sense then that the narrative of the book of Zechariah shifts. Zechariah is no longer concerned with the current state of Israel after his eight prophetic dreams. He moves on and he begins to talk about the future state of the world. His prophetic voice it really comes to life here. It sounds much more familiar to Isaiah and Jeremiah as Zechariah begins to declare that when the future messianic king comes, the people who are these high priestly kings will not pay attention. Just like they did in, in the past when other prophets came and spoke to them. Rather, Zechariah says, it will be the lowly shepherds of Israel who will see the Messiah. Uh, this begins to usher Zechariah and the reader into a new space as Zechariah begins to talk about how the Messiah will be a man known for his humility. He will be like the shepherds, albeit he will be a priestly king. The Messiah will be humble, but he will come riding in to dethrone the enemies of God on a donkey. These two messages, priestly king, humble man, side by side in Zechariah. And, and when this happens, when the Messiah comes in riding on a donkey, that is when God will establish his royal messianic kingdom of peace and blessing in Jerusalem. And all the nations, Zechariah says, 
will come forth and worship this priestly king man of humility, the man who we've been calling the Snake Crusher. Now, okay, 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 okay. I, I think I'm gonna say something controversial here. Controversial? Controversial, oh no. <laughs> but I think that we're all adults, and if you're not an adult, then I think we can all be the bigger person here. And, and it's fine, because people are offended all the time, and, and my hope is that you won't be offended for long when I say that. <gasps> I think, in many, many ways, we have over-spiritualized what the Messiah has already done. Now, I know, I know, I know. If you're doing the whole thought exercise of Bible Unbound with us, then we haven't even met the Messiah, nor do we know what he is going to do or say. But I think we have enough language from the prophets alone to know that when he does come onto the stage, it will change everything. And it will start with the people of God. Now, when I say we have over-spiritualized it, it's because I think we look at what the Snake Crusher will do and, and think some, some magic divinity makes us better people. But if anything, that's only a half-truth. Let's do our own little mental exercise here. Just, just, just bear with me, imagine with me, if you will, that you are sinful. <gasps> I know, I know, I know, I know, that can't possibly be, but just take a moment and play the little game with me. Imagine that, that you actually fall short of God's holy, incomplete, pure, perfect standard. Just imagine it, that you have wronged other people in your life, that you've lied, that you're a cheat, that you've hurt someone else, that you have used your power to devalue another human life. Sit with it. Sit with it? Okay, now, imagine that the God of the universe takes a look at the breadth and the weight of the sin that you have just put in the front of your mind, and this God shows you exactly how it has hurt and affected the lives of other people and says that you are thus deserving of punishment for the disorder and the chaos that you have created in the world. And since you have committed these injustices against an eternal God and against the immortal part of human beings, namely their divine image-bearing nature, that you are thus deserving of eternal punishment. Mm. He says that to you. <laughs> he says that you are deserving of eternal punishment. Just play the game. But, he says, there is an alternative. The alternative is this. 
recognize who his messianic king is, and you'll be absolved of all your injustices. That's it. Just recognize who he is and who you are. What do you do? Well, in play with me here. You think through the two paths that are ahead of you. On the one hand, you have an eternity of never-ending punishment because you've caused never-ending chaos in your life and in the lives of others. And on the other hand, you have a space where you can be so freed from your iniquities that you are able to go and ask for forgiveness from the people who you've wronged. In fact, you're not only able, you want to, knowing that you have ultimate forgiveness in God. What does that do to a person other than bring them to their knees in humility? What does that do to the human mind other than level the absolute mess out of the playing field? I think that even if you don't believe in the whole miraculous nature of what the Son of Man will come and do, you still have to acknowledge the simple reality that it requires the person looking upon him to be humbled. And that is exactly what Zechariah is getting at. His whole point here is that the Messiah will come only when people are ready for him too. But what does that mean? It means that the Messiah will come for the humble in heart and he will be the one to cause the humility. People who don't want to change, don't want to change. You know, later scores of Jewish leaders will take the book of Zechariah to mean that the Messiah will only come when people are righteous enough. That's how we will get the Pharisees and Sadducees. But they're forgetting the central message of the book of Zechariah, that the Messiah himself will come riding on a donkey, not for priestly kings, but for the shepherds. Okay, let's take a look at some passages from Zechariah while we have some time here. This is in Zechariah 7, right after his eight nightly visions and before the future prophecies. He's addressing the people who are building the temple and who have not kept the commandments of God. He writes this, and I told you this was in chapter 7, so if you want to go check it out, you can, but I'm going to paraphrase just for time and consistency's sake. But it was the fourth year, and King Darius was in charge, and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. It was the fourth day of the ninth month, and that's the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent a man named Sherazar and Regamelech. Um, by the way, these are going to be some high fancy official guys. Uh, they came with their men to ask the priests and the prophets. They said this, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? And that's when the word of the Lord Almighty came to Zechariah. It said this, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, um, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months uh, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when, when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? 
Are these not the words that the Lord had proclaimed through earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous? This is what the Lord said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Don't plot evil against each other. But they, they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs, they covered their ears, they, they made their hearts as hard as flint, and they didn't listen to the law or to the words that the Lord had sent by his spirit through the prophets. So God was very angry with them. God says, when I called, they didn't listen. So when they called, I'm not going to listen. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations. They were strangers there. The land they left behind them, it was so desolate that nobody wanted to travel through it. This is how they made the pleasant land, the promised land, desolate. You see, and this is Austin speaking, Zechariah is no longer in charge here. The people of God in the past, they made the promised land, this place that was representative of life and abundance and goodness, it was a place of death because of their sinfulness. They were bent on committing injustices and oppressing the vulnerable, and God is mad about that. And that's the story of all of us. That's the story of humanity. You see, if you were with me in that thought exercise earlier, you can relate to the people here who God is talking about and to the people who, who have fallen short of God's holy standard. Because we so often want to please all these other people. You know, we want to show them that we're holy and that we're righteous and that we're fasting on the fifth and the seventh month for 70 years. And we've neglected completely to love justice and to seek mercy. Which is to say that we want other people to see how righteous we are when we have neglected God altogether. So now that you understand the weight of the sinfulness of the people of God, listen to the words in Zechariah 10 and let them affect you accordingly. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It's the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all the people and to the plants of the field, to everyone. You know, the idols, they speak deceitfully. Diviners, they see visions that lie. You know, they tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. That's why all the people wander like sheep that are oppressed for lack of a shepherd. You see, from Judah will come the cornerstone. God says, I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them at all, for I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. The Ephraimites, that is to say the Israelites, will become like warriors. Their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and they will be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them, and I will gather them in, all of them. Surely I will redeem them, that they will be as numerous as before. Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in a distant land they will remember me there too. They and their children will survive. They will return. I will bring them back from Egypt. I will gather them from Assyria. I will bring them from Gilead and Lebanon, and there will not be even enough room for them. There will be so many. They will pass through the sea of trouble. It will be subdued, and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought low. 
Egypt's scepter will pass away. But I will strengthen them in the Lord. And in him, they will live securely. You see, God is not some weak household idol that he would let his people wander away from him never to return. He will gather those, even those that fall short of his name, and he will guide them in the ways of righteousness and justice among all the nations of the earth. He will bring in the nation of Israel. And as Zechariah enters into the prophetic fold of of hundreds of prophecies before him, this Eden-like era of existence will not just be for those who are descendants of Abraham, but, but rather it will be for all the nations of the earth, for Egypt and Assyria. There won't be even enough room for them, he says, for the people will gather together under the name of the Messiah, and it will be so filled with the throngs of other nations that there won't even be standing room. You see, the purification of the hearts of God's people will not start or end with the exiles returning from Babylon. The purification of the land will be cosmically greater than we originally thought. And it will start and end with the Messiah. This was Bible Unbound. We'll see you next week for the final episode in the Old Testament. Thank you so much.